From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. I am Malihe Razazan. And I'm Khalil Bandib. Last month, Saudi Arabia and its allies, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, and Egypt, cut off all diplomatic and economic ties with Qatar and imposed a land and air blockade under the pretext of Qatar's alleged support for terrorism. Soon after, they turned the screws on Qatar by giving it 10 days to comply with a list of 13 demands. According to news reports, this list of demands included a dictate to shut down Al Jazeera network and all media outlets funded by Qatar directly or indirectly, like Arab 21, Middle East Eye, Al Arabi Al Jadid, and Rast. Malihi spoke with Adil Iskandar, an assistant professor of global communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, about Al Jazeera and its operation for the past 20 years, and what's in store for the network, as well as an overview of the conflict between the Saudi-led bloc and Qatar. I want to say that the Rao has different parameters and different perspectives and different aspects to it. And it's very difficult to kind of unpack it without taking into consideration the geopolitics of the region. Historically, the Gulf Cooperation Council has been an organization, an intergovernmental organization with a tremendous amount of concert on virtually every major issue. The few instances where we have a country or a political group demonstrating any form of dissent or oppositional politics or are sort of parading a perspective that goes against the grain of the general consensus in this uh, highly sort of concentrated monarchical political system, they're often met with quiet behind-the-scenes admonishments that often turn into full capitulation. And we've seen those examples happen at various points over the last 20 to 30 years. This particular circumstance is unusual in that the rhetoric and the propensity for escalation is much more pronounced than ever before. These are countries that, for the most part, have sort of blood ties, or at least perceive Uh, the existence of blood ties. These are countries that, with the exception of Saudi Arabia, were carved out of the British colonial presence in the region, where various monarchs were given initially mandates and later pseudo-sovereignty over these territories and their inhabitants, with the intention of creating competition, admittedly, between them. But they've found a way to work with one another because they have a mutual interest. And they also have constructed a mutual enemy, or nemesis in Iran. Functionally speaking, this particular conflict, if you will, is a function of the Qataris growing too fast or being l'enfant terrible of the region. The Qataris have, uh, at least since the mid-90s, with the removal of former Emir Hamad's father, who was removed in a palace coup, has basically charted its own foreign policy that is starkly different from that of the other countries in the region. On many critical issues, they are harmonized and synchronized. But whenever and wherever Qatar finds an opportunity to demonstrate its own autonomy, it does so. Part of this autonomy has manifested in the form of significant investments, international investments in the financial sector, in the import-export sector, in the sport industries, and various others. I mean, they've really gone out and not just followed in the footsteps of the Saudis and Emiratis, but essentially outpaced them 
in significant international asset acquisition, which has rendered Qatar a major player on the international scene. Mm. These particular actions are not often seen as competitive because in a sort of familial context between these countries, the success of one monarch or success of one nation state is perceived as advantageous for all. But with the Qataris deciding to back opposition groups across the region and perhaps even in the Gulf, or at least attempting to showcase their palatable acceptance of opposition groups in the Gulf, they've essentially gone a step too far. For the Gulf countries and Egypt that are currently on a sort of a rhetorical, at least, and perhaps instrumental collision course with Qatar, this is a prime opportunity to, quote-unquote, teach Qatar a lesson. The global circumstances that we're in today with the ascendancy of Trump, the Brexit situation in the UK, a tremendous amount of disarray in the European Union, Turkey in a post-coup attempt situation, the region at large experiencing a significant resurgence of militarized authoritarianism Mm -hmm. in Syria, in Egypt, in Libya, and in the militarization of conflict. um, In Yemen. In Yemen, absolutely. And of course, the suppression of any protest movement across the region, including in Bahrain, which is essentially the Gulf's heart, right at the center of all of this quagmire. So with all of this happening simultaneously, it is fairly clear that while Qatar's international influence has increased from a financial standpoint, their political currency is actually on a decline, a significant decline. The parties that they supported alongside, in many instances, both the Saudis and the Emiratis, Mm -hmm. in Syria, in Libya, in Egypt, in the Muslim Brotherhood, and even in Yemen, In most cases, these particular groups and political movements and militant groups have found themselves with waning influence. And also, it's important to note that these countries that are Saudi Arabia's allies in this recent crisis are heavily funded by Saudi Arabia. Bahrain, for example, is economically and politically dependent on Saudi Arabia. So is Egypt. So that also explains this coalition that's been built around opposing Qatar. Absolutely. The Saudis have, for much of the last 50 years, invested in being the primary benefactor of, quote-unquote, political stability in the region. Now, that often means that dissent cannot exist anywhere. Now, in many instances, the Saudis are happy to foment dissent, Uh, And we see that historically in the 1950s and 60s with Nasser coming to power in Egypt and them perceiving this Nasserist or pan-Arabist movement as a potential threat. They have challenged pan-Arabism in in the Levant as well, in Syria and in Lebanon over the years historically, which is part of their animosity and enmity towards Bashar al-Assad. The same applies in the case of Saddam Hussein. While they supported him against Iran for eight years and really essentially paid the bill for the Iraqi side of the Iran-Iraq war, they were happy to see him go because upon the inconclusive conclusion of that particular conflict, they found themselves with a far more dangerous circumstance in that a secular socialist, I mean authoritarian, of course, republic that presents an alternate model for governance. And that's something that the Saudis and the rest of the Gulf region were happy to see disappear. So no model can exist 
anywhere in their immediate vicinity that could in any way threaten this particular monarchical system. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, Qatar itself, its system of governance is not only similar to, but it's identical to that of the rest of the region. Mm -hmm. So it's not as if Qatar itself poses a threat. It is Qatar's investments in other countries that wield a significant amount Mm -hmm. of popular influence that can essentially have major repercussions. So one should not underplay the impact that Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt and various other iterations of the same organization and group across the Arab and Muslim world and also in the West, the extent to which that is perceived as a real threat to the system of governance in Saudi Arabia and the Gulf at large. While the Muslim Brotherhood and various groups that are similar to it are experiencing a real sort of decline. Mm. And I think that explains why the Saudis and the Egyptians and the Emiratis are happy to go for the jugular right Mm. now. They nevertheless are considered the most functional existential threat to the system of governance in the Gulf. These states, in the aftermath of the uprisings in the Middle East, they acted as counter-revolutionary forces to squash indigenous uprisings in the Middle East and North Africa. Yes, for some of them, they were happy to support these uprisings. In the case of Syria, they perceived the opposition to Bashar al-Assad to be incredibly worthwhile. In fact, many of them were happy to support the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, which they were enemies of in Egypt and elsewhere. So in this case, the pragmatics of intergovernmental competition prevailed against the logic of an even playing field. Of course, the militarization of those conflicts is part of the reason why they devolved in the way that they have. Exactly. Uh, And they've systematically done so. It's really fascinating to look at how the Saudis and the Emiratis, and to a lesser extent with various degrees of difference, the Qataris Mm. have distributed arms and financing to Mm. various parties across the region. Whereas in some cases they are supporting the institutions of the state and its military Mm. against opposition groups. In other instances they are supporting opposition militias Mm. against centralized governments. And really there is a realpolitik that is part and parcel of all of this. Mm. But I'm going to also state that I think part of it is actually very much connected to the cult of personality in the region. The relationship that exists between the heads of state in the Gulf has a large part to do with the extent to which they're prepared to tolerate each other's transgressions. And also whether or not they are prepared to have an appetite for public critique. At this particular juncture in time, we have a very unique turning of the tide and a major generational shift happening across the Gulf with the rise of a new generation of leaders within the ranks of these monarchies who are going to assume authority soon or have already done so. In the case of Tamim, the emir of Qatar, who his father abdicated the role of emir to him. In the case of Hamad bin Salman's rise in Saudi Arabia, and then two other figures in the United Arab Emirates, both in Dubai and Abu Dhabi of the same generation, there is sort of a a self-evident expectation that they either work together as a cohort, as as their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents have for many, many years, or that there should be a break. 
And the break is not in any way advantageous to any of these countries. Admittedly, even the Saudis and Emiratis are registering a significant amount of, of loss as a function of this particular blockade. And so it's not advantageous. But I really think that uh, one aspect that is being underplayed and, and not really discussed in most of the coverage of this particular conflict is the role that personality plays into it. And I think one component that is worth noting is the extent to which families don't really dissent against one another in that particular environment. So you're not supposed to go out and kind of parade and berate one another in the international media or release leaks against each other or to air out each other's dirty laundry. But that's actually happened and, and it's a real startling turning point. Each of those countries, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Qatar are actually the three hubs of media and content production in the region. Hmm. Most of the satellite networks in the region are based either in Qatar or in Dubai. The Dubai media city hosts most of the private networks in the region, with the exception of the Qatari stations. Egypt is also a major hub, but a lot of the media production areas in Cairo, uh, or at, right outside of Cairo, are also largely bankrolled by Saudi and Emirati investors. So we're really looking at an environment where uh, the collision course, as far as media is concerned, is between these incredibly sort of muscular media organizations that reflect the ambitions and motivations and proclivities of their respective states. So Al Arabiya is based in Dubai? Yes. Most oh. Saudi-funded networks are based in Dubai because of the Saudi restrictions. And that's their way of basically outsourcing their media production. Saudi so, restriction in what way? In restriction in every regard. In terms of the employment laws, most of these networks hire women and they have women on air. They also have coverage that would be deemed inappropriate if it were to be produced in Saudi Arabia. So, and the same applies with like Sky News Arabia. So all of these networks are Saudi funded, but based in Dubai so that they have greater latitude to do what they need to do. These are the arms of Saudi media influence. And they date back to the Middle East Broadcasting Company, NBC, which is the, one of the very first satellite networks mm. that came into being in 1991. So the Saudis are the first to, them and the Egyptians are the first to invest in media production at the satellite mm. level. Saudi Arabia, Egypt, United Arab Emirates, and Bahrain, they're also pressing Qatar to limit its relations with Iran, remove Turkish troops from Qatar's soil, and contact with groups such as Muslim Brotherhood, and submit to monthly and annual monitoring to make sure they're compliant. Why has Al Jazeera been caught up in the middle of this crisis? I think the reason why Al Jazeera is caught up in all of this is because Al Jazeera has, for much of the last 21 years, at least the Arabic network, served as Qatar's most successful international brand. It is the brand that helps kind of varnish the image of the country. It is, it is a brand that has been able to solidify itself in the world of journalism and press freedoms. It's a brand that, while it has its own sort of misgivings and, and underperformance in, in many instances, and of course, there, if there's enough time, it's worth reviewing those, it's 
probably the most successful news organization to emerge not just from the Middle East, but from the global south at large. Mm. And that in and of itself is a trend that the Emiratis and the Saudis have always wanted to set rather than be in the back row kind of watching this unfold. They wanted to be the ones leading the charge and leading sort of media production internationally. Mm. They wanted to be the ones to launch an English language network. I think the first seed, and, and we have to take posterity into, into consideration, but the very act that rendered Al Jazeera a satellite network based in Doha happened as a function of a botched or a failed collaboration between BBC World Service mm. television and the Saudi company that invested in setting up the first Arabic language network in London. When the Saudis in the early 90s decided that the Arab world needed a 24-hour news organization akin to the BBC, they decided to bankroll it based out of London with the credibility and repute that the BBC possesses in the region. And of course, the first few days of coverage quickly demonstrated that the Saudis had no appetite for editorial independence at all. In fact, the real torch in all of this was a feature segment about public beheadings in Saudi Arabia. Huh. And when the Saudis, the Saudi funders decided that they would call out the editorial team in London and, tell, and let them know that this is unacceptable, they expected the, the editorial office to succumb and accept this intervention. And they didn't. And as soon as the documentary started airing, they essentially pulled both the coverage and the network off air indefinitely. So that was the end of BBC World Service Arabic language satellite network to the region, which is what the Saudis wanted to do all along. And that is the first seed of Al Jazeera. When the emir of Qatar at the time, Hamad bin Khalifa Thani, saw this, he immediately reached out to the core nucleus of journalists who were based in London and asked them to relocate to Qatar to set up a network which later became Al Jazeera in its stead. And so from the moment of germination of Al Jazeera, it is fairly self-evident that the competition between the Qataris and the Saudis was deeply enshrined. So why did Qatar decide in 1996 to launch Al Jazeera Arabi? Um, what was the real motivation behind starting a new TV network? I suspect that the emir of Qatar, as was the case across the region, had watched this, the incredible sort of captivation that a lot of Arab audiences were demonstrating in response to 24-hour news. I mean, keep in mind that news programming in the Arab world at the time was heavily influenced by governments. Most countries had ministries of information, which presided over local broadcasting. And most of the news coverage was essentially reduced to head of state announces this, head of state opens a new hospital, a new mosque, sends, you know, a greeting to such and such head of, you know, leader. So it was very ceremonial and very official and very authoritative and authoritarian. So watching BBC and watching CNN in the early days of satellite television was quite captivating. And it's not unusual for various countries across the region to do the same thing. The Egyptians set up something called the Egyptian Satellite Channel, and the Saudis, both the Egyptians and the Saudis, launched satellites in, into orbit around that period so they could capture the satellite market. And so the Qataris decided that they will join the fray, which is quite adventurous for a country that small at that time with so little influence. But evidently, the emir had a particular vision for his country and believed that to safeguard 
Qatar from the various regional challenges that surround it. And the fact that it happens to be at this fault line between Iran and Saudi Arabia in a sort of a lengthy, drawn out kind of war of attrition, mm. cold war of attrition between the two countries, uh, meant that he wanted to play all of his cards. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, I think that Al Jazeera, while it was an incredibly successful experiment in broadcasting, the characteristics of its success are themselves also the instruments for its demise. I'm speaking with Adel Skandar, Assistant Professor of Global Communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, about Al Jazeera, its operation for the past 20 years, and the network's future. Adel, Al Jazeera English was created in 2006 by its Arabic sister satellite station. Al Jazeera Arabic was created back in 1996. Both are owned by the Qatari state. So can we just briefly divide up these two stations and and talk about sort of the trajectory of Al Jazeera Arabic and how it has evolved over time? Because it seems to be more quote-unquote controversial than its sister station, Al Jazeera English. So Al Jazeera Arabic, as you said, was uh, created in 1996, uh, incidentally, around the same time that Fox came into being, Fox exactly. News Channel. Exactly. So the network itself was set up to be a freewheeling 24-hour news organization that brings on board reporters from across the region, that it was not going to be a Qatari network per se. The intention was for it to be uh, independent and firewalled from direct intervention from the Qatari government. And the original funding arrangement was for it to have a sort of a startup fund, if you will, like a seed fund Mm -hmm. to kickstart the station with the intention that it will become financially independent by three years into operations. That has obviously not happened, and it hasn't happened to this day. There, Of course, it does generate some funds through shared exclusive footage and and the sale of documentaries and various other things, including sports, actually. Sports programming is one of the biggest sources of revenue for the Al Jazeera family of networks. But essentially, the station made its its name in the Arab world as the first and probably the only network prepared to do investigative reporting in a real sort of professional way. And and also a station that's prepared to do conflict and war correspondency on TV, particularly of the live variety, which is something that captivated audiences in the region who were accustomed to war, but rarely had any real war coverage that wasn't clearly biased in favor of one particular party or group or state at the expense of another. And then also, in addition to that, a real part of the Al Jazeera brand became open-ended, no-holds-barred political debates on TV. We're talking about shows that can last as long as two hours at a time. Mm. This is, think, for instance, the equivalent of back in the day when CNN launched Crossfire, Mm. something akin to Crossfire, only a lot more heated, a lot more confrontational and the subject matter itself in many cases was extremely taboo these are issues that had never been discussed on air previously do you agree with those who argue that al jazeera arabic in the beginning opened up political debate in the middle east absolutely and not only did it open up political debate and deliberation and and created a discourse for oppositional politics in in the region, at least as far as broadcasting goes. Mm. It also sowed the seeds for the replicability 
of the Al Jazeera approach to doing things. So now when you fast forward, I'm not going to fast forward for too long, but just to give you an idea, today there are at least 50, somewhere between 15 and 20 other stations that resemble Al Jazeera that emerge from different parts of the Arab world, all of which have these various characteristics embedded in their programming. So Al Jazeera is no longer the only network on the block that does this. They were the first. So they cut the ribbon, if you will. But since then, it's now a much more competitive field. But in the life of Al Jazeera, that era, while very substantial and very influential and really laid down the foundations of broadcast journalism in the region. And it's important to note broadcast journalism versus print journalism because print journalism has a much longer, much more intriguing and compelling tradition in the region. That original nucleus of journalists that set up Al Jazeera had come from BBC, some of whom are still there. Mm. They're still involved and have built a real reputation for themselves yeah. with the network. But Al Jazeera has gone through a very tumultuous period in its 21 years, Al Jazeera Arabic, that is, with every launch of another arm of the Al Jazeera family of stations, whether it's the Al Jazeera English in 2006 and later Al Jazeera America and then AJ Plus and various other instruments, less attention has been drawn to Al Jazeera Arabic, which has allowed it to sort of recede into the background and allowed it to do its own thing. And doing its own thing has not necessarily been the most beneficial outcome because the firewalling that was expected and part and parcel of the network's original claim to independence and part of what drew audiences to it quickly started to dissipate as the Qatari foreign policy and Al Jazeera Arabic's coverage became much more harmonized and synchronized. They started looking more alike than anything else. So for instance, on Egypt, Al Jazeera Arabic sounded a lot like the Qatari foreign policy position in favor of the Muslim Brotherhood at the expense of various other parties. So the choice to support specific political groups at the expense of others became a little bit of an Achilles heel for the station. You can take that and apply it to various countries. So in the, in the case of the protest movement and revolution in, in Syria before it devolved into a civil war, Qatari station, the, the Arabic language Al Jazeera was so incredibly adamantly supportive of the opposition mm. that, and one need not be a supporter of the Assad regime, but it was still startlingly one-sided. And that really hurt its credibility specifically as it was once perceived as the Middle East's answer to or variation of BBC. So the two, the difference between BBC Arabic, which now exists in, in the televised form, yeah. and Al Jazeera became very stark. Mm. And the same applies in Yemen, where the Al Jazeera Arabic supported the Saudi-led coalition against the Houthis. Mm. In Bahrain, where Al Jazeera very quickly ended up siding with the, the monarchy there against the protesters in Pearl Roundabout. And in Libya. So basically, there was complete harmonization yeah. between the Qatari foreign policy and Al Jazeera Arabic coverage. And in Syria. Absolutely. Syria being really the gold standard, if yeah. you will, yeah. as far as it's a real barometer for where Al Jazeera actually uh, not only stumbled, but basically landed headfirst. The choice on the part of Al Jazeera Arabic to absolutely and unabashedly support the opposition groups and the rebel groups and the militias against Bashar al-Assad in many instances without 
clear sort of unpacking of these various groups became really, really problematic. There's lots of coverage to to document this. It's not this is not a non-evidenced accusation. They had gone out of their way to varnish the image of Jabhat al-Nusra, for instance, the once Al-Qaeda affiliate in the region, with great, highly glorifying interviews with their leader in Raqqa and other places. I mean, just and traveling around and showcasing the incredible system of governance that Jabhat al-Nusra has created mm-hmm. in the areas that it, that it rules. And so many things of that sort that, you know, the English language viewer not likely to be privy to on the English language station. And in fact, because of the, the strict kind of editorial, the professional editorial policies of the English language network, none of this coverage could have ever made it to air without significant amount of scrutiny and context. So the Arabic network had basically gone rogue, I would say probably from 2012 onwards, and decided to essentially side with specific political groups. Now, because Al Jazeera Arabic is the network that uh, functionally addresses Arab audiences, it is more than just a public relations instrument for the Qatari government. It is, in fact, a way in which they're able to sway public uh, opinion in one direction versus another. Even today? Uh, absolutely. So, for instance, if you watch Al Jazeera Arabic now, it is a big campaign to support Qatar against these countries. And I think this is where the proof is really in the pudding. We now see Al Jazeera Arabic essentially turn into the same network that it that it was born not to be, mm-hmm. which is a tool of the government that funds it. It is now officially a Qatari news organization. It is not the freewheeling, independent you know, news organization that covers the region even-handedly. It no longer does that. It is now dedicated almost entirely to advocating for the government of Qatar. Can you give us some examples of how Al Jazeera Arabic has covered the standoff between Qatar and the Saudis. Well, I'll tell you this, you know, I can even tell you this empirically speaking. In the last month since this blockade has gone into effect, Al Jazeera Arabic has hosted more Qatari speakers, officials, most of them officials, of course, rather than members of the public, on air than they have in the last 21 years of their broadcast. So Essentially, it's as if a button had been pressed where that says, let's put these people on air. You know, we need a Qatari perspective. We are a Qatari network. But essentially, if you were to watch Al Jazeera Arabic today and if you were able to comprehend what's being said, it is a rolling critique of all the governments in the region that are currently opposing Qatar, essentially scandalizing them, releasing information about their complicity in the support of various terrorist groups or militias uh, in the region. This is basically Qatar trying to sort of transfer both the blame and the accusation to the Saudis and Emiratis, who in many, in almost all instances, with very few exceptions, are also embroiled in the same in the same type of activity. Mm. So in essence, this is their way shoving it back in the faces of these other Arab governments. Mm. But the coverage is continuous. So, and, and this has never happened before. Historically, when, when I was working on the book with my colleague Mohammed al-Nawawi, and we posed a question about why it is that Al-Zi Arabic rarely covers Qatar at the time, 
the manager of the station, as well as the ambassador and uh, the Qatari ambassador in DC, both had the same line of reasoning. They basically said, Qatar is too small to matter. Nobody wants to know what's happening in Qatar. And that stayed the same for the last 21 years, even as Qatar's influence regionally and internationally became much more substantial as the country's GDP became the highest in the world, as its natural reserves, uh, gas reserves were discovered to be the second largest in the world, as they began to monetize so significantly and to invest internationally. Nevertheless, Qatar was not the subject of conversation and discussion. It was mostly projecting the conflicts and the struggles of other countries, but not their backyard. And their backyard is essentially 15 kilometers away from from the offices of of the U.S. military central mm-hmm. command. So while the station itself parades its anti-imperial, anti-American credentials on mm-hmm. air, it is within a stone's throw from the largest air base and the home of Central Command, U.S. Central. If I remember in 2013, about 22 Al Jazeera reporters quit in protest of Al Jazeera's coverage of the events in Egypt, calling it biased in favor of Muslim Brotherhood. Do you think we might see the same sort of exodus or protest happening in the near future? I don't know. I think that it's difficult to gauge whether or not something like this might happen. It looks like anyone who would step forward either as a current employee or former employee or someone who's deciding to leave to come down and uh, and essentially kick, if you will, yeah. the network right now on these accusations, it would seem like they're beating a dead horse yeah. and beating someone while they're up against the wall. This is not Al Jazeera's strongest moment and they're being asked to shut down. So anyone giving this particular agenda um, munition may be perceived as as a traitor. But nevertheless, this kind of criticism that you described and these defections or these departures are actually quite frequent. And they've happened not just in that circumstance. There are many journalists who've left Al Jazeera and had strong qualms and reservations about the experiences that they had within it for various reasons. I mean, some are often brushed off as kind of an ad hominem critique against a director or a superior in the newsroom, but some are a lot more sort of politically informed critiques. But all this to say that I think right now we're at the point where there's a lot of airing of criticism against everyone and anyone. Mm -hmm. So the Saudis and the Emiratis are themselves beginning to release the opening the black box, if you will, of Al Jazeera. They're producing documentation to show that Al Jazeera Arabic has been problematic for the following reasons. And the same is happening with Qataris. Qataris are also bankrolling offices and media monitors to to basically incriminate the other group. So so this is, you know, it wouldn't be unusual for there to be journalists, in some cases perhaps even bankrolled by the opposing side, who will come out and and critique the networks. But there is a a functionally problematic aspect to the way in which Al Jazeera transformed. A lot of people joined Al Jazeera looking for a role to play in a dynamic, exciting, enthralling, journalistic uh, news organization that uh, has a no-holds-barred approach to doing things and wants to flip the uneven 
distribution of knowledge and information in the world and reverse the flow for, that is typically from north to south and west to east. Mm. There's often been a lot of excitement for people to join Al Jazeera. Mm. And for many of them, it is a rewarding experience. But for others, it's been a very, very difficult journey. And it's not just journalists in Egypt, but many journalists in Turkey. Obviously, Al Jazeera's coverage of Turkey in the last maybe five or six years has been, Arabic especially, has been very problematic and extremely supportive of Erdogan, despite the various convulsions that have happened since and his increasingly repressive government. So these things are, are often very alienating for journalists, but whether or not they bring this to the fore and decide to, mm-hmm. to take this publicly, it remains to be seen. I think the, the real struggle right now is far bigger and far and far more substantial than Al Jazeera. I think Al Jazeera is, in the grand scheme of things, more like collateral damage. I hate to use this militarized language, but yeah. for this particular circumstance, it it is that precisely. But again, one shouldn't understate the extent to which the governments in the region want to see Al Jazeera gone. They really do for, for a variety of reasons. One, because it's a competitor. Second, because it's a thorn in their side. And third, because it reflects the ambitions of of a Qatari government that now is behaving in a manner that they cannot shackle. And they want to be able to shackle. They want everybody in line. The ducks have to be in order. And now Al Jazeera is, is turning into a, a tool that further disenfranchises them. The coverage in the last few days has just been mesmerizing, to say the least, uh, on Al Jazeera and, and the various networks mm-hmm. in the region. Mm-hmm. It is mm-hmm. a full-on media war today. Mm. And I've never seen anything quite like it. It is very unusual for Gulf countries to be at each other's necks in this way and to do this in such a public fashion. And Um, on social media. This is going to be a very, very difficult rift to heal. The wound is getting deeper and everyone's pouring salt in it. And in a region where loyalty, especially (laughs) loyalty and ageism as well, are a big function of the relationship between individuals in in the upper echelons of of the political order, as well as the way in which countries ceremonially deal with one another. All of this decorum has been shattered completely. And I have a feeling that it's going to be very, very difficult to heal this. You can't put all this back into the box. It's out and it's in clear sight. So the Saudis, I don't think, will relent very easily. I don't think they'll relent at all. In fact, I think it's becoming increasingly becoming a vendetta. And the Qataris are themselves perhaps, uh, I mean, I'm going to go off on a limb here and, and call it a bit of a miscalculation because I think the Qataris stand to lose a significant amount, especially with a very, very stubborn, highly muscular, increasingly militarized Saudi Arabia mm. and a country that really has no regard at all for international uh, treaties or human rights law or anything of the sort. Mm. So you have to sort of size up your opposition in this case. And it seems to me that there's a little bit of a miscalculation. But that doesn't go against what Qatar's foreign policy has done. I mean, it's had a series of blunders, one after the next. Virtually every political group or party they've supported has seen their fortunes wane in the last while. So this may be a game, a very difficult game of brinksmanship that the Qataris stand to lose. It may scandalize the the Gulf countries, the GCC and Egypt, but I have a feeling none of these countries really (laughs) care about their public image internationally. That was Professor Iskandar speaking with Melihe Razazan 
about the Saudi-Qatar crisis and why Al Jazeera network has become such a target for Saudi Arabia and its allies. How has Al Jazeera changed the media ecosystem in the Middle East? We'll hear more after a short break. From Pacifica Radio, this is Voices of the Middle East and North Africa. about Al Jazeera English, after Saudis and their close friends announced the blockade, Saudi Arabia closed the Al Jazeera Bureau in Riyadh and took away its operating license. Jordan later followed suit, announcing the closure of Al Jazeera Bureau in Amman and the withdrawal of its operating license in Jordan. Uh, Al Jazeera was banned a couple of months ago in Egypt on May 24th, Egypt blocked access to 21 websites, including the website of Al Jazeera, Huffington Post Arabic, and prominent local independent news site Mad'a Masr. So what countries haven't banned Al Jazeera? Well, I mean, in, in their 21-year history, they've been banned in so many different places. Usually these types of responses from governments are a badge of honor that Al Jazeera is very proud of. And mm. so they have no problem with being shut down or having their offices bombed or having their journalists arrested. I, mean, I don't mean they don't have a problem with it, but yeah. this has only added to their credentials as an embattled news organization, which reflects very positively internationally. So that's not something that they're particularly concerned about. Uh, what they are concerned about is the kind of political pressure that can render them obsolete completely. And that has to come at the very highest level, where basically the king of Saudi Arabia and the various uh, leaders in, in the region subject Qatar to such pressure that they have to shut down the operation entirely. And to do so, whether they're kicking and shoving, but to do so on their own accord and with their forced consent, if you will. So that, I think, is the big threat. But the shutting down of Al Jazeera and going after them and, and arresting their journalists, that has never been a successful strategy to either silence the network. In fact, it has a very opposite response. Uh, people are drawn to Al Jazeera more when, when they feel like they're being targeted. That said, it is, of course, this particular action is in line with what these governments have done historically to any oppositional news organization. But one has to keep in mind that, at least in the case of Al Jazeera, their offices in, in Saudi Arabia existed largely because the reporting on Saudi Arabia was absolutely glowing mm -hmm. at all times. Saudis don't give journalistic permits easily. They don't dole them out mm -hmm. to anyone. It's a very, very, very tough and rigorous vetting process. And it is also based on the kind of programming. If they like what they see on air about Saudi Arabia, then you, you have access. They don't like it, you're gone, and it means nothing to them to have you gone. And so historically, I would say probably over the last maybe 10 years, the Al Jazeera Arabic has been incredibly positive on Saudi Arabia. I mean, talking about the reform movement, the modernization in the country, the progress that it's making, it's, I mean, really, even in the case of the conflicts in the region, always looking at Saudi Arabia as the 
elder parent, if you will, a barometer or the compass for the region's politics. So this is an exceptional circumstance because it demonstrates that, that Al Jazeera has never really been at odds with Saudi Arabia until this very moment. And now that they are opposing Saudi Arabia in a very explicit way, the Saudis will more than likely be choosing to escalate against the network. I don't think the Saudis deal well with critique. In fact, they rarely ever get critiqued anywhere in the region. For as, as even as far away as Tunisia and Morocco, countries that are not in the direct influence of Saudi Arabia, at least not uh, in the non-financial sense, there's very little criticism of Saudi Arabia anywhere. They they are essentially bankrolling silence. Exactly. You know? They're buying and loyalty. Absolutely. Yeah. Buying loyalty and bankrolling silence has been mm. a real signature of the Saudi way of doing things. And it's paid off for Al Jazeera. They didn't need to criticize Saudi Arabia or they sidestepped Saudi Arabia in many cases. They were upset about the Saudis' support for Sisi in Egypt, but they would focus more on Sisi's downfall and his malpractice and his his authoritarianism as opposed to focusing on Saudi Arabia's support for him. In many instances, they were actually trying to put a wedge between the Saudis and, and the Egyptian government. So they'd say things like, the Egyptian government is exploiting Saudi Arabia. The Egyptian government is is misappropriating the the funds given to given to them by Saudi Arabia. That the money is not well spent and it's being squandered and it's a horrible investment. And and the Sisi is a despicable leader. And the key is to basically say, you know, the the view that Al Jazeera has been a thorn in the side of Saudi Arabia from day one that is very clearly untrue. So the tone now has changed significantly, and that tone is not going to bid well for Al Jazeera. Let's move on and talk about um, Al Jazeera English, which has a different trajectory than that of Al Jazeera Arabic. The events following 9-11, the invasion of Afghanistan and Iraq, the watershed 2010-2011 uprisings in the Arab world, and also the war in Syria and Yemen, crystallized the network's role. How was it able to define itself as a major player in the region that has long had a history of strict media censorship and massive suppression of freedom of expression? So the English language network, when it came into being, was set up in such a way, to the chagrin of some people who were big fans of the Arabic network during its early days, was set up to to essentially mirror the BBC only with a focus on the global south. They were one of the, the early slogans was everybody watches CNN, but who is CNN watching? And so the idea here is that they are more connected to the local news than foreign correspondents. So the the impetus behind it and the message behind it is that we are going local. We are doing local or hyper-local, or we're bringing in journalists who are reporting from their milieus, their atmospheres, their context, their experiences, their countries. And that's going to give us an unvarnished view of the realities of these particular places. But at the same time, with the strong funding that is not unlike a major private network, major corporate network. So with uh, a billion dollars later and four broadcast studios in Washington, D.C., London, Doha, and Kuala Lumpur, the station was really a force to be reckoned with from the moment that it came into being. Any news that they would cover 
would become news. And you would remember, I don't know if you will recall, but for some time they had this slogan that said, setting the news agenda. Hmm. That was their slogan. And it is quite correct. If, you, if you're that substantial, that large, that kind of reach, and they were able to pay their way into various markets in Europe and in sub-Saharan Africa and, and in North America and elsewhere, that has really given them a, a massive push and, and created tremendous amount of visibility for the product itself. The product was intriguing because these areas were presented in a way that was much more nuanced, much more contextual, much more sophisticated and much more historically grounded than any of the coverage that existed prior. And the long form, the commitment to not rushing or not reducing the discussion to sound bites and also opening discussions like long open-ended conversations about circumstances in, in these countries, set it aside and, and really helped create a, a large and growing audience for the station. But like any experiment, it does have its its downside. And I think that downside is very much connected to what happened in the, in the Middle East during and after the uprisings. Uh, like any network that happens to find itself literally at the heart of a story, and Al Jazeera English, because of its immense reach and the, the large number of bureaus that they had all over the world, wherever there was a story, Al Jazeera happened to be there. It would take... CNN or BBC or The Guardian or New York Times a day or two to even get someone on site, mm. whereas wow. Al Jazeera was literally there as events unfolded everywhere. That is the advantage of having such a massive budget, an open-ended budget, in fact. Like Nobody knows what the budget for Al Jazeera is. Al Jazeera English alone was created with a, a billion dollars worth of mm. operations. Mm. So... There, so we're talking about billions of dollars spent literally every year mm. to keep this operation going. So, And their salaries are relatively competitive, admittedly, compared to most other operations. So all this to say that Al Jazeera was always in the right place at the right time. And when it came to the uprisings, I mean, they were literally at the epicenter of most of these protest movements. They were in, in Tahrir Square the vast majority of the time. Now, other other reporters and other journalists and other organizations arrived as well, but no one spoke English and could relay the intricacies of the circumstances mm. in a country like Egypt, quite like Al Jazeera English. Mm. So that became their, um, I would say actually it was kind of their swan song, because shortly thereafter, a few months later, we had the Syrian uprising turned civil war. And that quickly, as I said, devolved and became very complicated. By that point, I think there was an element of groupthink within the Al Jazeera network and, and a sort of a, an overzealousness and an excitement about scooping the world, if you will, scooping the world's media around these uprisings. And then, of course, if, it, if they turned into full-on militarized conflicts, then who does war correspondency in the Middle East better than, than Al Jazeera? Mm -hmm. So essentially, these were their stories to cover. And, and also, um, Adil, they, they were really successful and interested in amplifying the voices of ordinary people on the streets of the Arab world. This is also a function of the way in which they approach journalism. They were looking at it from the bottom up. Mm. They were interested in participatory journalism. They were interested in the vivid experiential aspects of coverage. They were very keen on making sure that journalists are local. 
in those places. So the journalists are local, the stories are local, and there was plenty of time to cover them. So all of this became really captivating, particularly in the region. And But also at- during the war in Iraq, they were the only ones that showed the horror of the war, which made them a target for the Bush administration, and they bombed their facility in Baghdad. Absolutely. They were bombed in Baghdad, and they also bombed in, in Afghanistan. And in Afghanistan, uh, yes. In fact, another under-discussed under issue is the extent to which Al Jazeera English has been able to successfully cover the multiple wards in Gaza, as well as the various kind of bombing campaigns against in Lebanon in 2006. So Al Jazeera has been really at the forefront of U.S. military might and imperial intervention for many, many years in the region. Now, the irony of all of this, again, just to kind of contextualize this for, to listeners, is that virtually all, I would say at least 90% of all bombing, aerial bombing campaigns in the Middle East had aircrafts that departed or at least refueled at yeah. the Odaid Air Force Base in Doha, Qatar, which is not very far at all from Al Jazeera's headquarters. So all of this is to say that Al Jazeera was able to show that it can do things that a typical news organization shouldn't, given its proximity to a strong ally of the United States, uh, which, of course, added to its, to its accolades. And admittedly, you know, one has to give credit where credit is due. The station has received a huge host of international awards in journalism for the work that they've done. And some of the work is so stellar and so precise and so moving that it's the type of stuff that will live on for, for decades to come. Like a mass, there's really a massive archive of phenomenal journalism produced by Al Jazeera English over the years. Uh, but at the same time, Having said that, the region itself is now sort of imploding in complicated ways that has rendered the Al Jazeera product far less appealing mm-hmm. and far less interesting to audiences. Uh, there's a growing, not only a disenchantment, but an almost fatalism when it comes to watching Al Jazeera's content nowadays. People are not looking for nuance, but rather there's a fair amount of sort of self-driven, self-absorbed, narcissistic, like contrarian politics that is happening. And people are no longer watching the news on Al Jazeera or elsewhere with the same kind of deciphering lens. There's a lot of dismissiveness. People watch news on, on Al Jazeera and other networks and say, well, this is just fake news or this isn't real. Or this particular reporting is not true or it's, it's false in, in a number of ways. And that has really sort of hurt our ability to relay with any degree of, of conviction the emotional appeal that, and the emotional experiences that people are living out in the region today. Adel Iskandar is an assistant professor of global communications at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. He is the author, co-author, and editor of several works, including Egypt in Flux, Essays on an Unfinished Revolution, and Al Jazeera, the story of the network that is rattling governments and redefining modern journalism. He is also co-editor of Jadalia Electronic Magazine. Tune in next week for the second part of this interview. Thank you.
And that's it for us this week. Voices of the Middle East and North Africa is produced at KPFA Studios in Berkeley. To get in touch, you can call us at 510-848-6767, extension 632, email vomekpfa at yahoo.com. Connect with us on our Facebook at Voices of the Middle East and North Africa or follow us on Vomina Radio. Please join us next time for another edition of Voices of the Middle East and North Africa.